0: Welcome to episode 19 of You're a Financial Planner Now What? I'm your host, Hannah Moore, Certified Financial Planner and Owner of Guiding Wealth Management. On today's episode, we have Mike Mills. Mike started his own financial planning firm when he was 25 and shares his story and perspective now that he's 18 years into the business. He also shares how he uses the best is best standard for clients rather than the fee-only standard. I hope you enjoy this episode. Well, thanks for joining us today, Mike. How are you doing? Very well. Good. How are you? I'm doing well, yeah. For the people who don't know you out there, who is Mike Mills? Like, Where are you at in life? Kind of what's going on in your world?
1: Yeah, so I've been an advisor now for, gosh, almost 18 years. I think I started in 98, right before the bust in the tech market. To see a little bit of the run up, and then I think the day I started my company was a few days before it busted and then went straight down for three years. But uh, so I'm a you know kind of mid career financial guy, probably. We are a registered investment advisory firm, we're located in South Lake, Texas. Um, we're probably 105 million under management or so, uh, plus or minus, depending on how you count. Uh, we are primarily, you know, I mean, we do financial planning first and foremost, and then we, you know, implement those plans.
0: Great. And now you have staff that works for you, right?
1: I do. Okay. So we, we're four people. Um, you know, I have a kind of a senior advisor that's worked for me for five years, uh, full time, two administrative support people, you know, client service and an admin, executive assistant
0: that's great so okay let's go back 18 years how did you get into financial planning
1: well I was uh, just graduated the Air Force Academy in what was that 1995 and I was in the Air Force and I was going to work out one day at lunch and I kissed a truck on my motorcycle so after a long battle with trying to stay alive I got thrown out of the Air Force and medically retired sent back home to live with mom and dad because I, I was in pretty bad shape. And so, you know, I did rehab and went back to school and ultimately took a job back in the defense industry. And I was falling asleep at work every day. And, uh, I had started investing my lawnmower money in high school back in the, you know, back when I was mowing lawns and I always had an interest in investing. And, um, started interviewing guys around town, uh, principals and different hedge fund, you know, investment managers and whatnot. And I had met a guy that was a, a registered investment advisor and, You know, he kind of showed me, you know, what financial planning, how how the career field worked, and I ended up, after talking with him, uh, he didn't have a succession plan and was looking for one. And I ultimately went to a firm called H D which is in Las Colinas. We were, at the time, we were were helping CPAs get licensed and and basically be in their back offices. They would get licensed and we'd help them get up to speed and would provide all the administrative support on the back uh, as far as, you know, building a practice. And so I stayed there for about a year and a half. Uh, learned, you know, learned a lot every day. And after working with them, I was like, "Well, if they can do it, I can do it." And so I partnered back up with the guy that I had met, you know, a couple of years earlier. He gave me some office space, and away I went. In nineteen, right, right before nineteen ninety nine, and the melting of the tech bubble.
0: There always seems to be such great like starting points for advisors. It's usually right before the crash, or right at the bottom of it.
1: Yeah, And looking back on it, I mean, like, you know, looking back on it, like starting a crash is way better than starting three months before the crash. You know yeah, I mean? that's true. Like, you know, everybody, your conversations, you know, when you were talking to people, were like, oh, my gosh, I, you know, I just bought some tech stock last week and I got a jillion percent, you know, the first day. And, you know, what are you going to do for me? You know, you start preaching diversification and financial planning, I look at you like you're crazy.
0: You said that you had been talking with the guy for the succession plan. Did you end up buying his practice?
1: I did not, but we did. We just ended up basically sharing resources. We could never come to an agreement.
0: Okay, so you left HVS, and so did you start out as an RIA, or did you start out as a broker dealer?
1: So he was jointly licensed. So it was he had a broker dealer about his the business was probably it, we, he was primarily a DFA shop through a reseller, dimensional funds, you know, yep. and um, uh, he had a small bro- independent broker dealer that he that he cleared through and so I cleared through that same relationship you know for the first four or five years
0: okay so you leave the HD vest did you have any clients to start out with
1: not really when I was just a couple I mean you know mom dad people like that grandma
0: (laughs) (laughs) the standard god bless family (laughs) okay so how did you start finding clients um
1: you know so that's a great question. I mean, I think I went back to my network, my natural network. You know, at the at the very beginning. Um, you know, I you know at the time I was probably twenty-five. You know, uphill in the snow both ways, right? Yeah. Uh, here in Texas, and uh, <laughs> I, I just you know natural natural network and people that I met. You know, just to, you know I joined all the chamber and local stuff and. I had a an office at the ballpark, and I used that to do some seminars, you know, if I could get people to come, which was always hard. <laughs> and then I partnered up with a medical association. I had a, a friend that uh, had a relationship with the uh, uh, Texas Medical Association at the time, and so we did some asset planning protection work with some uh, state attorneys, and that that was productive. I wrote a lot. Like, kind of like you uh, at the time when I had time, I mean, I, I didn't have any, <laughs> any clients. I, I spent a lot of time writing and I published in local newspapers and anybody, any place that would put anything to print, you know, prior to blog starting. You know, um, I did that a lot. And then I, I finally found a, a, an Upstart magazine in my community in Southlake that uh, I wrote in for, gosh, probably two years, three years, you know, every week as they were kind of getting started. And that worked out really well. Um, just as far as giving, I think it did two things. One, it helped me really clarify my beliefs and then two, you know, the consistency of being in that publication over and over really got my name well known in my community. It takes a long time to work. Like anything with the media, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like, you know, you just started the next day at work, but you know, a year, year and a half, two years after I'd been doing it, people had a familiarity with you that I think I still get, you know, a lot of benefit from today.
0: So for a lot of young people who are starting out, they kind of have, you know, three or five years before they break, like start actually making money. What was that threshold for you? Like how long before you were actually pulling in? Like,
1: an I had a really nice, I had a really nice year my third year and then my fourth and fifth year were so good. I was looking back at my social security statement the other day, it came in the mail and then you remember how painful it was. <laughs> <laughs> But I think what had happened is the, the first two years I was, I ran pretty thin. You know, I was pretty lean in how I was set up. And then after the third year, I went and hired some staff. And so my fourth and fifth year, I actually made money, but I didn't make, you know, I, I had a lot bigger overhead.
0: Right. So, so okay. You
1: know, my net, my net wasn't as good as I was as expected, but my top line, you know, went up every year.
0: So, okay. So your fifth year in, you're 30 who are your clients? I mean, were you, were you serving your peers yeah, or were you so, serving retirees or?
1: So by the time I got to my 50, I had some, I had a few doctors, you know, you know, nice doctors from that medical relationship. Um, I had, you know, I had my natural network, which were my peers, right? Which, which kind of my, you know, what I, kind of my target at that point guys were starting to get out of the air force and they were getting big jobs. Some of them, you know, And the faster the guys that had got out after five years. And so that would put them 10 years into their career. And so I kind of selectively went back and started kind of picking off the guys that I thought would be good clients and had good, bright potential futures. Um, and then and then just, you know, obviously it's been a natural network around town. Some of the older people that had, you know, specific planning issues or they had read my articles, but, you know, starting to get diverse by that point, but not specialized by any means.
0: So was like you never niched down <laughs> looked like really. A, looked like a shotgun, right? anything that fogs the mirror.
1: Which if I could do it again, I would have a extreme specialty, you know, at the beginning anyway.
0: That's definitely a hot button topic right now is how people need to be niching down quickly.
1: I think that I think the communities are so much smaller. And so I think that you can always, it's not like you can always take on anybody that you want to take on. And, and I really think that the you know, the it's more from a branding marketing perspective than anything else, and it, and I think it makes it a little bit more scalable because you see the same situations over and over again. Um, so the the community, the referral network community can be smaller, and I think it's a little bit more compelling of a marketing message when you're, you know, you you know, like I'm you know do this and this and this only, you know, as opposed to hey we you know, help everybody that can fog a mirror right. Right. And so, you know, I think as we've gotten older and look at our client base and we've really narrowed down what our client base looks like today, I mean, it's all leaders. You know, the commonality amongst my clients is they're very high income, you know, complex planning, you know, leadership scenarios. Some, some are executive a few are business owners, but then they're usually a transition. But that's still not, that's still not super specialized. It's just what it is.
0: <laughs> right. So would you ever consider specializing now or is that kind of – you're past that point Uh, you know
1: yeah I think it's it's kind of hard now I mean I I think we've talked a lot about it like what it would look like I think from a marketing standpoint I could see that happening um but you know I mean now it's we're all referral based and so for the most part the majority of what we're we're servicing is just referrals which is a heck of a lot easier than having to go out and find it every single day
0: there's a lot of 25 year olds that want to be starting out on their own. Like, what would you say to the 25 or 27 year old who's really looking at, they want their own practice someday. They're tired of working for other people. Like what would be your kind of message to them?
1: Well, I would say make sure you have a, a, you know, an attractive emergency fund, right. You need to make sure you have enough resources to survive. However long you think it could take, you know, and I would err on the side. I think the, you know, I think, you know, if you can get a couple years of living expenses built up, you know, more is better. Because I think the more confidence you have, the 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 better advice you can give, and the more you can really you know be committed to, to getting through the, the hump, right? Um, the uh, you know how how I did it at the time, and I still think this is a really good way. You know, is we did, you know, I was a fee based advisor. I didn't I didn't do fee only. And even though 100% of the money we were placed under management was really with DFA or index funds, it was all kind of just all self-managed through us. It wasn't a – I didn't use a a deer platform or anything like that. But I I did uh, mixed in disability insurance because of my personal story with disability. Uh, i one of the few guys that's woken up disabled twice. And so, you know, my protection story was just really strong and something I really believed in. And so the, you know, by mixing in both the protection side with investments, I think it's a natural yin and yang that really helped, you know, get me through that lean years because I was able to, you know, immediately go in and just place money under management, which now is paying dividends and spades. Um, but at the, the time, you know, I, I mean, I could make a little bit of money on the planning revenue and or, you know, through selling the term policy or, disability policy that would get you through those lean years when things were a little thinner.
0: So let me make sure I'm understanding you. So a new client comes to you, a 30-year-old who has $30,000 in investable assets. You would take their assets, put those into like a fee-based product, and then sell them the life insurance and disability insurance. Is that right?
1: Amen. That was their biggest problem at the time, right? They needed an emergency fund and they needed protection. Right, so I'd get them a couple million dollars of term insurance. I mean, depending on their income, you know, because if most of my clients were making six figures at that time, so they were, you know, if there was $100, a hundred, hundred fifty thousand dollar year annual income was you know, relatively low net worth, hundred thousand, hundred fifty thousand, you know, mostly in a 401k or IRA, you know, is what we would have seen. You know, maybe you know a little bit liquid, and yeah, so we, you know, typically they didn't have a disability policy. If they did, it was through work, and it was, you know, garbage. Not, not enough to, to get them through if something happened like I, what I went through anyway. And so yeah, so we would increase their disability, get them in a little bit better contract, keep to what they had at work, and add on a term policy that was convertible.
0: So one of the big things that I hear a lot right now is all these young advisors who are trying to do a fee-only practice. And so that's definitely not how you did it. Well, Yeah, I, I don't know
1: how I did it. I mean, I think, you know, I think that The concept of what people are trying to do, I think, is good. You know, I kind of think that one of the biggest problems in the industry right now is that you don't have enough qualified fiduciaries out there that are selling insurance. I mean, obviously, it's one of the major components of a financial plan. And I think that as more and more people minimize insurance, that, you know, it gets less and less prevalent in a plan. And then when you look at most of the stats, you know, they would say that most people are underinsured. I don't I don't see how that I don't see how we get past that. I think that gets worse, not better.
0: Right. And so I mean kind of in that vein that, you know, if a thirty year old client is gonna be paying, you know, thousand, two thousand dollars in insurance premium, it might as well be going to the financial planner instead of the agent that the planner refers him to.
1: Yeah, or four hundred.
0: Or four hundred dollars, <laughs> yeah. $300, yeah, whatever that may be. Yeah, I
1: mean, like, you know, I know if that it's a 30-year-old term policy to a million bucks, right? Like, a million dollars was $350 a year, yeah. you know, per million, right? So it wasn't, wasn't like it was a lot of money, but every little bit helps. And, it, I mean, it was a good product. But, yeah, I think in a typical planning scenario, right, it's a typical scenario where a guy walks in, he's got six-figure income, relatively low net worth. You know, you're making – most of my guys were saving 15 or 20% of their net worth, I mean, of, of their uh, income. So they had, you know, twenty thousand dollars a year of flow coming in, right? So in five years it's gonna be a decent client if they keep that savings rate up and continue to move into the executive ranks. And you know, at the time, you know, you could, you know, right up the first year you'd make at least twenty five hundred dollars per client. I mean, well, maybe not quite that, but you know, over over the course of the first year or two in the relationship. Because if you have a you know, eight hundred dollar commission on the on the term insurance depending on how much death benefit they, they needed, you know, and then a, and a, and a disability policy, which was probably $2,500. And, you know, I think that pay half. So that's another 1250 or so. So, you know, you put that together with the, the investment assets and, you know, it, you know it, it was enough to, I think, make that, you know, prospect, you know, worth, worth taking versus just kicking down the road and looking for the retiree that at the end of the day i couldn't help like that was the other thing that led me to that to that client type is i could take a 30 year old that was not sure how much to save or that wasn't that was going to have you know be a 10 million dollar client by the time he retires and i could mold and shape and encourage him down the path that you know that may be a little different than he was on and i could have tremendous impact in his family's life over time but the retiree that came to me his path was set like i really couldn't change it i mean i could Maybe I could help a little bit with how much you could spend, but ultimately I couldn't really change his outcome much.
0: What's so great is what I'm hearing from you is what I hear from so many of my peers who are starting their own firms. Like they want to help their peers. They know that they can make such a more impactful difference. And what's great is you're 18 years into it versus the one or two or just starting out. And I'll
1: tell you, I'll tell you this too. the, The balance, like you're seeing it in the industry stats now, but so many of the people that did retirement, planning practices only, you know, those books die. And so, whereas our book, you know, is at the prime of its life right now. I mean, we have tremendous flow coming in as we're starting to have exits, you know, like those guys that we signed up 10 or 15 years ago, that started their business, you know, and they, they didn't, you know, they, they, the insurance was all they had, right? That and their business. Well, their businesses are, you know, I've got one selling right now for, you know, $23 million. And so, you know, that's going to be a really big exit to change that guy's life. You know, but I mean, it's, it's been pretty thin up to this point for that particular client outside of his insurance purchases because it was all in the business.
0: Right. Okay, so I feel like there's a lot of confusion around this issue, and it's being a fiduciary. And what I'm hearing you say is that you're a fiduciary who sells insurance. And I feel like for a lot of people, that that might seem like oil and water, like they don't mix. How do? Yeah, you... I don't
1: think so. I mean, I so here's how I, I reckon. I mean, I think I told you this the other day, but I believe best is best, right? Like so. If we're out there providing our best advice, I don't really care what kind of product I'm selling. Like at the end of the day, I'm solving problems, right? So when somebody comes in and they've got a big income and no assets, they can't walk I mean, their biggest problem is that they don't have enough assets to be able to walk away or protect their family if something happens, right? So, I mean, insurance is is best. I mean, it's best. And so that's what they need. And so then it's just a matter of finding the the best product that you can get that's at the lowest price. It's got the, the best you know, reputation, the best, you know, like I'm a mutual kind of guy I like these companies that, that the policy holders own um, when possible, because I think that allows the insurance companies to think a little bit more longer term. Um, and then when I, here in, here in Southlake, I can get my power from TXU or I can get it from this little, uh, 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 what's it called where they own, it's owned, you know, it's a, uh, uh, Oh, I can't remember what they're called, but it's a power <laughs> company. It's owned by its people. You know, it's it's a, a co-op, a co-op. Sorry, that's yeah. what I was looking for, co-op. And so the, the co-op, the local co-op that was here when this was a small town, you know, the power rates are $0.07 cents because they don't have to pay their shareholders. You know, and so I think you see that same thing in insurance a lot. Like, if I, can, if I can use a mutual company, I can't promise you that it's cheaper in the short run, but I think in the long run, it allows the management of the company to be able to obviously not have to pay stockholders that can pay the the policyholders through lower policy costs. it may, it may not be any cheaper. Maybe it's the same, but I think it gives more flexibility. So that's kind of how we've done it. If we can, when when we can use a policy that's for a mutual company, we will.
0: Right. So you're saying that you can really, that fiduciary is does not equal fee only. I think. I
1: don't think so. No. And they're starting to be, you know, the other thing, like, so, I know TA craft right now has a really attractive uh, variable life product that has some, and I think they have a variable node too, uh, as does Jefferson national that have no commission built into the product. But when you look at the term cost of those products, I think there's a merit to a few other people have kind of fee only insurance products out there. The products are still really expensive relative to a commissionable product. That's insane. Like, I mean, so you're telling me that I can take a commission I can basically make it easier for my client. I can get paid a little bit of money, which may allow me to charge a little less somewhere else, right? And I can customize that experience, you know, all the way through, you know, bundle it all under one one roof versus me just basically do all the work and then outsource it to someone else and have to worry about them selling something that I don't think is best. I don't know. I just, I think that selling insurance provides a a better package for the clients. I think clients will prefer it. I mean, as long as you have, now that's assuming you have the expertise. Now, granted, I was, I was run over by a truck, and it's something that I've been passionate about ever since I, I learned how to work because it's such a big problem.
0: Right. And having that personal story behind it, I bet really yeah. I'm motivates telling you. Like, yeah.
1: might, I'm telling you, like, both times, both times when I woke up, my first conscious thought was, oh my goodness, how am I going to survive? You know, how am I going to pay for things? How am I going to take care of my family? That was my first conscious – Like uh, that's the one thing I remember from my wreck immediately, both times.
0: And you – so you had two different incidences?
1: Uh, it was one. Oh, one, a, okay. A follow, I had a follow-on surgery. Um, one was before I had kids, one after. But after I had kids, I had a surgery um, to deal with some phantom pain that I was having in my arm, and I, I woke up paralyzed from the waist down. Oh wow! And that was a little more scary than the first time, really, because the first time it was just me. You know, I kind of knew I could get by with that, but the the second time, you know, you had had three kids at home. You're like, oh,
0: well, and for people, yeah, for people not listening, in your first accident, you lost an arm. Is that right?
1: I did. I had a compound femur fracture and a bunch of nerve damage in my leg, and uh, and I lost my arm.
0: So people come in. I mean, it's a visual; people can see that. I mean, they there's obviously a story behind it. So that, that's really... Yeah, it's
1: funny. It's funny. People will sit around a table with you and they'll be like, oh, that's not going to happen to me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I took one for the team. You know, one out of four or <laughs> five, right?
0: Oh, that's hilarious. Oh, that's great.
1: <laughs> I think the other thing that, I, I think that that is probably good to talk about, but I really think that when you, when you, the, the, the great conflict reducer besides disclosure which I'm a firm mm. proponent of disclosure you know fully into how you're compensated and, and I mean what you're getting paid I, I don't think the clients mind people making money they just want to feel like they're getting a good value and good service and you know and, and uh, I think that uh, if somebody's doing you know assets under management approach you know and, and or financial planning but or a retainer I mean some, t- some type of ongoing compensation, and they're they're utilizing insurance that maybe pays a little bit more upfront where all the work is, right? I mean the reason the insurance pays upfront, front is because that's where all the work is. I mean it's a tremendous amount more work, I think, than just opening a Schwab account for us. But the uh, it's a great balancer because the one pays up front and the one pays down the road. I would argue that in the long run we make less selling insurance, getting paid one time up front than we do with an assets or managed approach with you know, it's growing over time. I think typically I've, I've calculated the math on it, but usually it's around a 12 to 14 year break-even, depending on your assumptions. But you know, if you're going to sell something at the end, you know, as practices become more and more sellable, I think that it's a it's definitely a pay cut to sell an insurance product over assets and a management approach.
0: Right, especially if you have that time horizon.
1: I mean, I mean, I, that, yeah, that's assuming you're keeping the client. I mean, there's some other assumptions to go into that, but. You know, I mean, we have very little turnover in our book and we keep our clients a long time, but, you know, most of them are adding more money in the back than they are at the beginning. And so by having a, the ability to be able to take on maybe a few smaller clients early, especially if they're, you know, they're high quality potential and, you know, I mean, you can tell, I mean, I mean they're going to have complex plans in the future. And they need the help today. Right. Like, Kelly, don't kick those guys down the road if you can help them.
0: Right you touched on a really good point where I feel like a lot of people have this like idea of fee only. And even if they can get onto the idea of that, you know, I love that best is best standard. Um, but if they can get on the idea of the fee only, they're like, well, the client can understand it. And what, how do you, number one, are you finding clients are looking for fee only or like, what have your objections been on that? And then how do you, how do you level that playing field?
1: I don't think clients so much know. I think clients are going with their gut on some level. I think you know most of them that we sit down with will have referrals to two or three people, and then from that point on, you know, I mean, in our community, they may meet with a fee-only group, they may meet with us, they may meet with somebody at a warehouse. But I think at that first meeting, you know, they're assessing which person they have the best fit with, um, and you know, I think we win more than we lose. So I don't feel like I've never really felt like I lose that much by doing it this way over the other way. I mean, maybe there's people that I'm not getting that I don't know I'm not getting because, you know, they make that decision beforehand. But but I, I generally think that, you know, clients ask around. They know who the top firms are in town. They know the advisors that are that, that are that have good reputations. And so I think if there's anything you can focus on, it's providing a great service, building a great reputation, educating your centers of influence, right? Getting out there and, and being well-known amongst the people that people respect and then being one of those people that they respect, whether that comes from blogging or writing or speaking, giving seminars. I mean, but, you know, we've got all this great information that's in our heads and that we've accumulated by all means, get it out there.
0: You had mentioned just briefly about, um, like fee disclosure and how that's central for the client. So do you disclose all of your insurance commissions and, or how do you do that with clients?
1: I do. We typically try to provide a, you know, a kind of a piece of paper at closing, like, you know, as we're wrapping, we're doing the implementation. that just goes over how we're compensated. We obviously give the ADV2, which has all that in it, too, at the beginning. And then, we, you know, as we go through the individual paperwork, we, we try to refresh. Now, this one, you know, we get paid a commission, you know that, you know, yada, yada, it's this much. Um, but as much as we can, you know, to, you know without it clogging up the system, is to put it all out there in front of the client.
0: I was talking to somebody, it was a couple of years ago, but they were saying, you know, with credit cards now, you have just that one sheet where it's uniform. I mean, you have the, you know, your APR, you know, all of these things that have, so you can compare one credit card versus another credit card. And I've often thought that that's a really good idea for financial planners in this whole industry is if there was some way
1: simpler, yeah. I think the simpler we can make our disclosure. Like, you know, even the ADV is long, right? I mean, it does 12, 13 pages or something eight pages. And so I think the, the simpler and easier, and that's kind of why I like to do it at the time that we're filling out the applications. you know, because you've, I mean, there's a lot of paperwork at that stage, which maybe that's the bad point, but you know, that the one more piece of paper that's really simple and made by us is probably easier to understand than some big legal piece of paper made by some company.
0: Okay. I want to switch gears a little bit. So we talked about like when you first like that zero to five years, so
1: uphill <laughs> <laughs> both ways in the snow.
0: <laughs> you survived like that's did you have a lot of game peers? Of survival
1: this is a game of this is a game of longevity
0: did you ha- so did you have a lot of peers that you went through this with like did you have study groups or were you kind of you the know, only one
1: you know i had a lot so my network from hd vest like we were a pretty tight little group back in the day because they hired kind of in classes and so a, a lot of my peers became wholesalers and so i i got a lot of really good ideas um you know i had you know, probably that, that was probably the advantage and a disadvantage at the time. But, um, you know, I got to see a lot of different approaches. Um, I, you know, I had a lot of friends I trusted that helped me out, you know, that were willing to give me ideas. And You know, and so I spent a lot of time with them, more so than probably my peer group, because I don't think there was many guys my age that were dumb enough to do it the way I did it. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I, I that's who I probably spent more of my time with. I mean, obviously I had a mentor. I mean, and he kind of taught me how he did it. But I think it was it was harder it was harder getting advice from him because he is so far removed from where I was. Like even me today yeah. telling someone, oh yeah, you just gotta do it this way. It's one thing, you know. I mean, when I didn't have I didn't have much of a network. Like I was really in the network building stage at that point. And so I really probably spent five years, you know, like if my LinkedIn today probably has you know five thousand, you know, or more people on it that I'm at least one degree away from that I've met, talked to, visited with at some point, or, you know, either intimately or not. And that's the one thing I I think that I, I trade in, you know, is relationships. Right. Knowing who, knowing who to call, right. When somebody's selling a business and, you know, I think ultimately you said earlier, what, what will we specialize in if we ever brand one thing? I mean, we've done more and more work in the private equity space. And so I think we, we, we eventually get more and more services around supporting the entrepreneur that's cashing out or the private equity firm that's, you know, providing service to the uh entrepreneurs, you know, 401k advice targeted just to private equity or whatever.
0: Stuff like yeah. that. You hit on something really interesting. You talked about mentoring there and how like you had a mentor, but you guys in different ages. So if somebody's looking for a mentor, what would you suggest that they look for?
1: Well I think the well, first of all, like I think more than anything, either a like belief or somebody that you believe in the way that they're doing. It. I mean, like I know that in my approach, you know, somewhat opinionated. <laughs> and uh, I think the more you can you can associate yourself with somebody that's been there that, you know, years, you know, a decade or two in front of you, they can kind of give you some of those pitfalls that you're going to bump into so that you can avoid it, learn it through them versus having to learn it yourself. Is good. And, you know, if I could go back and do it again, I would have partnered up and bought a practice sooner. I did buy a couple of small practices early on, which I think was really good learning experience. But I really wish that I would have, you know, found a retiring advisor and bought his whole practice right away, assuming there was good fit. You know, and the one practice I bought or one of the ones I bought, the fit wasn't good. And it was a like it was probably a terrible purchase. It still worked out, but it didn't work out near as well as it could have. And, and I think it was because the fit of the client didn't match what my clients look like or were going to look like, both from a product like this one had a lot of variable annuity assets and I didn't do any variable annuity. And so it just it just was a bad, the bad fit, you know, overall, I think the client demographic wasn't wasn't like mine at all.
0: Yeah, that's a whole other topic on that succession plan and when to do it. Yep. And I think one, but thing- I think
1: the fit, but fit like the, the one advice that I would give is if you're going to buy a practice, you're going to partner with somebody, even a mentor. Try to find somebody if, if, I mean, if you can tell, that has really good fit. Fit from ideology, fit from, you know, you know, kind of direction, you know, type, what you what you want to look like one day, right? I mean, it, just good fit.
0: Yeah. And one other thing I just kind of want to add on there for anybody listening is if you're looking to buy a practice, one of the best things you can do right now is to start being successful with your own uh, because Amen. the more successful you are, the more attractive you're going to be to a potential for owner. Sure. So it's not just twiddling your thumbs, waiting for a practice. It's much more than that.
1: That's right. And, and I think a lot of that goes back to the block and tackling. I think the block and tackle in our industry, right? It's building relationships with a lot of people that you can help you know, within your area of expertise or your niche or you don't have an area just with people in general, right? And then, and then the centers of influence, right? The more centers of influence that you know and you can be a resource for, the more eventually that will play out in, in a referral, some referrals. And I think it's always better to give first. And so that goes back to having the big network. If you have a big network of people that you can find and uncover problems, well, even if you can't solve them, just being a resource to somebody that – just had a baby and they need a, they need a will, right? You know, they just had a baby. They don't have a will. It's their first one. A lot of them don't at that point anyway. I mean, what a good referral to, you know, an attorney to get that started. And you do that enough, he'll come back.
0: I want to focus on the people who are five to 10 years into the business. They've quote made it where they have enough money you know they're uh, kind of, they you know they're just kind the of hill. it's not a building that it's flattened out right, right. so it's quiet <laughs> yeah. so i don't feel like there's many people talking to that demographic what i mean you're 18 years into this so what do you advice would you give to kind of that person in that area
1: i mean i think it it, it comes to a point that you know you really have to decide what it is what what is your what do you want your practice to look like are you going to be just, you know, a boutique, you're going to totally focus on the client, you're going to outsource almost everything, or you're going to build, you know, a big multi-state firm with lots of people, right? And, and once you know what that's going to look like, that may impact the decision you make, and both in how you build your practice and what tools, products, services, other staff support that you need, right? And then get to that, as, get to scale as fast as you can right? for that particular model.
0: So did you find that you were doing different things when you got to that point than you were doing earlier, or was it just more of the oh, same yeah. thing?
1: Well, you know, I'm, I you know, don't know what I'm going to do when I grow up, so
0: yeah,
1: I, <laughs> I, I do dumb stuff all the time. <laughs> but it's, uh, like, yeah, I think I, I told you I had a bunch of friends that were in the private equity arena, so we kind of experimented with that a little bit and ultimately kind of uncovering an area that I think is really interesting, which is co-investing alongside large institutions um, as as a way to, you know, bring, basically as a way to lower cost, increase return, and monetize the private market premium that exists. But it's, you know, you've got to have a a higher network client base to be able to make that work. Right. And and I think sophisticated, right? Like, so I think where that product works out really well is if you have, you know, really high-income clients or or maybe – you have really high balance sheet clients, you know, 5 million and up that, um, you know, are somewhat sophisticated, but not probably completely retired is where it fits best, I think.
0: Right. Where they're kind of looking for something different.
1: Well, they're very sophisticated because they've been through the process themselves. And so it's, um, you know, they, they, and they're they usually entrepreneurs or they've sold a, something for more than 5 or $10 million at that point that they have a lot of options. And uh, as an independent, I mean, I can bring any option that I think best, right? And so it's, it's just the hard, sometimes the hard part is narrowing down what that is, but not ruining my scale. So one of the mistakes I think we've made early on was doing some stuff that at the time probably did not realize what impact it had on scale. But looking back, you're like man, that was. I mean, we never we could have never been paid enough to do that. But we learned a ton from an experience standpoint.
0: Right, the trial and so area. There, Try The trial yeah. and
1: error, whereas, you know, like I think a mentor, right, maybe could have shed some light on that before I just jumped in with both feet.
0: So do you have a mentor now or are you kind of?
1: I have a couple actually, but um, I mean, it's not formal. Right. I mean, I mean, well, I guess it's not formal, but I mean, not like good FBA or something, but yeah, absolutely.
0: So that mentorship is something that you really have throughout your entire career, not just when you're starting out. I think out. so.
1: I think, it, I think you should always be looking for it, right? I mean, I think the more people you can get that are ahead of you, The better, because they're different. There's, I mean, at every every stage along the path, it's just different different obstacles, right? And I think I told you we met that I joined a group called Entrepreneurs Organization, and that's been really really good for me because it's not industry specific, so it's a little broader. But you know, the the CPA down the street or the the attorney, I mean, they all have the same issues. It's service based business, right? under different, a yeah, different terminology,
0: right. same
1: issues, right. employees, you know.
0: Yeah. So this is kind of dovetailing off of that. As somebody who's looking for a mentor or looking for that, that network, where would you go? Where did, have you gone to find that? Or where would you recommend somebody goes?
1: Well, so for, for me, one thing that I've been really pleased with, like where I've seen, you know, been able to make a lot of common connections that I feel have been very valuable is to other people that utilize kind of dimensional fund strategy um, they have a pretty, they do a pretty good job of bringing people together, um, in study groups and conferences, and you know, obviously through the FPA has been good as far as meeting other other peers. I think it's easy to get out in your community and kind of be on the island, pretty isolated from other 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 practices and other planners. And so I think those community groups, conferences have always been good as far as meeting people, um, and sharing. You know, I think the Next Gen group is. Is awesome for that right
0: right absolutely and they're really broadening to that local level as well instead of just being a national organization yep great well is there anything else you want to add or any other pieces of advice or something we didn't cover
1: i think that the i think that no matter what c model we choose there's going to be conflicts you know i think we may have touched on this but you know the you know whether i'm Fee only or fee based, any type of compensation results in, in putting pressure on, on, on a, an action. You know, so I think that whether it's opaque or, or, or not, if it's opportunity cost based, like some of the decision may be opportunity cost based, it, it's still a cost. You know, and so the more open and transparent we can be with that, conflicts do exist, and then trying to you know utilize disclosure and simple communication to be able to highlight those. Uh, at the end of the day we're selling trust and so anything that you know passion and trust I think will win you more business than anything else
0: Right. I think that's great advice I love that passion and trust will win you more business than anything else that's really good so we write that down I, I know I'm going to need to make a t-shirt out of it or something <laughs> <laughs> get into another business there. Oh, great well thank you so much for joining us Mike
1: you bet thanks for having us
0: Thanks for joining us on this episode of Your Financial Planner, Now What? I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find more episodes online at financialplannerpodcast.com and sign up for our email list where you'll be the first to know of upcoming events and episodes. Join us again next week as we share another story of an incredible advisor.